This morning, God's Word comes to us from Romans chapter 7. If you have your own Bibles, you may turn there at this time, or that is printed in the worship folder this morning, Romans chapter 7. We're going to read the verses 7 through 25 of that chapter. Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. What we hear now is God's word. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies. I was once apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched a man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Also printed for you, if you turn back a couple pages, is uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Lord's Day 2. And this morning I will read for you uh, questions 3, 4, and 5. 
Lord's Day 2, question 3. How do you come to know your misery? The answer, the law of God tells me. Question 4. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Well, last week we began a new series of sermons on the Word of God as summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the fundamentals, dealing with the basics of the Christian faith. And we started last week by talking about the concepts of comfort and belonging and the joy, the blessing of knowing we belong to God. In life and in death, we belong to Him. After finishing that introduction, the Catechism now goes on to its first main section. And if you look at that that was printed for us in the bulletin, this says part one, And the title of part one is Man's Misery. Man's Misery. And if you've ever talked with someone who um, um, doesn't fully understand Calvinism, uh, what they often think about Calvinism is, all you guys ever talk about is sin. That's all you Calvinists ever want to talk about, is how sinful we are. And look at that. It begins with man's misery. If it's the case that we spend time talking about sin. It is because unless we understand the depth of our sin, the hopelessness of our condition, we will never see the true glory of the gospel. Only by recognizing the the fullness of man's fallenness, do the glories of the gospel become as glorious as they are and shine through upon us. Tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk about knowing our misery. And uh, three points under that, they're not listed in your outline, but three points this morning. Every sermon has three points. Three points this morning. Uh, First of all, uh, the awful revelation Secondly, the righteous requirements. And then finally, the only hope. The awful revelation, the righteous requirements, and the only hope. Our confession begins. How do you come to know your sin and misery? The law of God tells me. Quoting almost directly from Paul in verse 7. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, the awful revelation of our misery. What I find interesting is the catechism does not begin by asking, are we sinful? But it assumes a sinful nature. It assumes our sin and our misery. And maybe someone says, yeah, but but I, I just don't feel that way. I don't feel miserable. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't really have a relationship with God, but my life is pretty good. I, I don't feel so bad. That's part of the problem, is a refusal to recognize the true condition we are in. We are in a fallen, sinful, miserable condition, whether we know it or not. If we close our eyes to that, it does not change the reality. It would be kids like this morning. If after church, you walked out and you closed your eyes really tight and you said, you know what? I can't see the sun right now. So it must not be there. Well, you know that's not true. The sun is there whether you have your eyes open or not. When we close our eyes to the reality of our true condition, it is as if, Paul says earlier, we exchange the truth for a lie. And we fail to see the true nature of who we are. Paul says in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, become sinful beyond measure. The law points out our sin and its depth. Sinful beyond measure. The law is like that sun, like that light, that, that illumines the dark recesses of our hearts. We so easily ignore our sin or excuse our sin. But in the light of God's holy, perfect law, our sin is revealed. And we recognize our condition. We sometimes call that the second use of the law. The law as that which points out our sin and shows us our fallenness. The law is like that light examining our hearts within. How do you come to know your sin and misery? The law of God tells me. That's the awful revelation in the law. Well, some would say, well, if, if that's the problem, if the reading of the law points out our sin, then just don't read the law anymore. You know, it's be like when you go to the doctor, and you go to the doctor, and you say, you say, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And he says, well, just stop doing that. Just don't do that anymore. If, if reading the law points out our sin, then just ignore the law. Is that the answer to the problem? Is there any deficiency in the law? No, the law is holy and the law is righteous. In fact, uh, Paul points it out so clearly, again, right at the beginning. What shall we say then? 
that the law is sin? By no means. Certainly not. It's not the case that the law is sin. Verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. No, the answer is not by ignoring the law, but by recognizing the true place of the law. It's not the law that's the problem. It is sin seizing an opportunity. Look at verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Again, verse 11. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. It is not the command itself that is the problem. It is sin hearing that command and in hearing that command, seizing the opportunity to express our sin. The law is holy and is righteous. Kids, if you want to read about that, you go to the book of Psalms and turn to Psalm 119. Because in Psalm 119, the longest psalm, we have 176 verses that talk about the perfection of God's law. God's, God's righteous standards, His precepts, His commands, His ordinances are perfect, are wonderful, are glorious. Psalm 119 tells us about the perfection of the law of God. Now maybe, maybe you don't want to read all 176 verses. Then you can go to Psalm 19. Remember those two kids, 119 and 19. Both of these talk about the perfection of the law of God. From Psalm 19, we read there at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The perfections of the law of God. The law is perfect, reviving the soul. God's law is perfect. God's law is timeless. It spoke to the people in David's time. It spoke to the people in Paul's time. And the law of God still speaks to us today. When we see what's going on in society around us, some people will say, does the Bible say anything about that? Yes, the Bible speaks to our current situation. It has ongoing significance in the life of the believer. It helps us to see clearly what's going on around us and helps us to know how we are to live 
in a fallen and sinful world. The law is that which directs the path of the believer. We want to walk in the way of wisdom, want to walk in the way of safety, want to walk in the way of peace, then listen to the law of God. It's holy and righteous standards. It is perfect. It is timeless. It is without error. It is for us today. The law still has a place in the life of the believer. What is that law? Our catechism says, what does the law require? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the Lord your God, you shall love your neighbor. God does not make the law hard to understand. It is not difficult. What is it to keep the law? It's to love God above all and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law is an expression of our love. Oftentimes, people want to drive a wedge between loving someone and being lawful toward them. As if I can show them my love or I can keep the law. But these two meld together perfectly. The law gives us the standards by which we love our neighbor. It shows us how we might, we might live in peace with them that we might give willful, specific obedience to God in our relationship to Him, in our relationship to those around us. That we might fulfill those righteous requirements which God has given. To love Him with heart and soul and mind and strength. But when I read that, rather, rather than being encouraged... I find myself discouraged because I look at the love in my own life, my devotion to God. Am I loving Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength? In light of Jesus' summary of the law, I see how far short I have fallen from God's righteous standards. And that's part of Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Verse 19. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's Paul's struggle. The things I want to do, the things that are right, I don't do. And those things I should stay a million miles away from, that's what I go to. Paul highlights the hopelessness of our fallen condition. We do not love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. Those things that we know we should do, we stay away from. Those things we know we shouldn't do, we run to. And he finds himself not only unwilling to do those things he desires, but he's unable. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Even when I have the desire to do those things that are pleasing to God, to stay away from those things which are displeasing to God, I do not have the ability to carry out those desires. That's the nature of of man's fallenness, the desperate condition. Notice what question five asks in the catechism. Question five, after hearing the law, does not ask, do you live up to all this perfectly? It doesn't ask that question. It asks the question, can you? Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate my neighbor. What was the law, kids? The law was love God, love my neighbor. What's my natural tendency? Hate God, hate my neighbor. It is this struggle that Paul went through, it is this struggle we continue to go through. It brought Paul to these words in verse 23. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is Paul's conclusion. Wretched, unable to do anything. Who will deliver me from this body of death I find myself in? And when Paul gets to that position, to knowing he has no hope in himself, recognizing the depth of his misery, then, the glorious word of the gospel shines through all the more clearly. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Next verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God for what He has done. For in Jesus Christ He did what I could not do. I could not offer perfect obedience. I would go the wrong way every single time. But Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all righteousness. He kept the law perfectly on my behalf. 
His obedience was able not only to, take away, to, to be perfect for me, but He takes away all my sins as well. I am brought into fellowship with God once again, reconciled, at peace. Notice Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of sin? Not what can I do to rescue myself from this body of sin. Who will rescue me? He looks away from himself and looks to the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. What is my only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins. Until we recognize the depth, the fallenness, the hopelessness of our condition, those words just don't ring as clearly or as truly. He has fully paid for all my sins. It is that word of hope, that word of the gospel that goes forth again this morning. This morning we read the law of God. If you found yourself convicted by that law and recognizing you fall short of God's holy standard, rather than leaving saying, well, I guess I better do better and see if I can fix myself, Recognize even the good we want to do, we do not. The evil we do not want to do, that we do. Our hope is not found in anything in ourselves. It is found only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the, the blessing of knowing our misery is we see all the more clearly the glory of the gospel. Once again this morning, we have recalled God's holy law, our inability to keep that law, but we don't leave this morning being discouraged. We don't leave this morning being depressed. We leave knowing that God has sent his own son to do what we could not do, and all of his righteousness is credited to us. Our sins are gone. We are seen as perfectly righteous before God. No, we leave rejoicing. Rejoicing in what God has done. And that he will now lead us and guide us and direct us. That law which was once a burden to us now becomes a blessing. Because it teaches us the way of love. The way of life. The way to thank God for the glorious gift of salvation. Oh, may God use the knowledge of our sin and misery to point out the glory of the knowledge of our salvation. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for your holy word, a word that reveals our true condition, a word that reveals our fallenness, but also our only hope that you are our Savior, not anything we could offer, not the keeping of your law, but that you, through Jesus Christ, have done everything necessary for our salvation. Lord God, use that, that old truth, that truth we have heard many times before, give us encouragement and comfort today. Use this word, O oh God, 
to allow us to leave rejoicing, not in who we are or what we have done, but rejoicing in you and the work of your Son. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.